0: All right, once again, good morning. Good to see everybody. Can I uh, please have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 11. And unless a meteor hits the building, we should finish John 11 today. (laughs) I make no promises, but I think that's how it's going to go. All right. As we come to John, John 11, we really are at the end of the chapter uh, last week we saw that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and told those uh, who were at the mouth of the tomb when he came hopping out, still wrapped in grave clothes, loose him and let him go. That should be the testimony of every child of God that comes hopping out of the grave once Jesus Christ makes us alive. Spiritually, loose, loose them, let them go. So let's pick it up in Verse 45. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did, believed in him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. The Greek word is miracles. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation." And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God, who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on they plotted to to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. Now, when I read this section of Scripture, uh, one thing glares up from the text at me, and that is the hardness and the hypocrisy in the hearts of Israel's religious leaders. I mean, you would think that after seeing all the miracles Jesus did, especially this last one, raising uh, Lazarus from the dead after four days being dead, you would think that they would have fallen on their faces and received Jesus as their Messiah and Savior right there. That they would have immediately abandoned their empty religious practices. And uh, would started to have lived by the saying of Jesus, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And of course, God was speaking that to him, God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he said that. But Jesus indict, had indicted these uh, men when he said in John five thirty nine: You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me, yet you refuse to come to me that I might give you this life. It's amazing how blind these very religious men were, men who claimed to know God, who believed themselves to be righteous before God. What they really were was self-righteous. In fact, they had just enough self-righteousness, listen, to inoculate them to true righteousness in Christ. They didn't think they need them needed them. Uh, we're righteous. Why? Because we, you know, keep the feast days and sacrifices and all these other things, right? We have religion. Jesus had earlier referred uh, to the scribes uh, and Pharisees as blind leaders of the blind. And guys, this was made even more apparent as we study this section of Scripture. This section deals with the results or the effects of the resurrection of Lazarus. This was a miracle. Listen. Listen of defiance. You may not have thought of it that way. This was a miracle of defiance on the part of God in the face of Israel's rejection of Jesus, their God and Messiah. It was also, though, for the purpose of strengthening the faith of the disciples, verse 15 tells us, and no doubt did serve to bring a number of people to Christ after Lazarus was raised from the dead. So that was obviously part of it as well. Um, But it was a miracle of defiance, and then God really responded by doing something incredible to communicate to them that, you know, Jesus was in fact His Son, sent by the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit, God incarnate, and so on, and uh, so Jesus did a great work raising Lazarus from the dead. It's always interesting to me to study the reaction and the response of people. To a genuine work of God, if God works a genuine miracle or maybe brings a genuine revival, it's always interesting to study people's reactions. Now, as we look at this passage, we can see that among the crowd that was there, when Jesus raised Lazarus, this miracle was met with a mixed with mixed reactions, which is amazing to me in and of itself, right? It caused some to believe in Jesus. Verse verse forty five tells us. But for others it only served, listen, to further harden their hearts and solidify their hatred towards him. But then Jesus has always had that effect on people. Not that he's wanted it that way, it's just the way it it is, okay? Uh, he divides them, he polarizes people into two groups: those that believe in him and those that adamantly refuse to believe in him. Now, this is something he himself said would happen through his ministry. Remember what he said in Matthew 10, verses 34 to 36? He said, Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. Well, not the first time. Second time he will. Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Well, that's not so hard, but okay. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Understand, Jesus is not saying, I want to divide. But when you give people the truth, some embrace it, and others divide themselves from that truth. God's word is a sword, the sword of the spirit, right? And one of the main purposes of a sword is to cut and divide. This is just the reality. Not that Jesus wants to go around dividing families, but when you, when you proclaim the truth of God, some in a family will embrace it; others will adamantly be opposed to it. You're in a cult. I've heard that before from people. That, my family thinks I'm in a cult because I received. Christ. Well, okay, join the club. You know, my family thought I was in a cult too at first. But the idea is, you know, this is it, the God's truth divides. Now, hopefully, as we pray for people who are unsaved, they will be united with us again in Christ. All right, but. Um, in this last section of John chapter 11, it deals primarily with the hard-hearted, willful unbelief, primarily of the religious leaders. The hard-hearted unbelief, willful unbelief of those who refuse to believe in Jesus, listen, no matter what he did. No matter what he did. Unbelief is often irrational, closed-minded, and does not, and not the result of a lack of information or proof. But It's an act of the will in which a person, listen, determines they are not going to believe even in the face of overwhelming evidence and undeniable proof. It's interesting that none of these religious leaders of Israel at any time tries to deny this miracle because it's undeniable. So they simply ignored it. They're essentially saying, and I'm paraphrasing, don't confuse us with the facts. We know what we believe, okay? We know he's not the son of God, says the religious leaders of Israel. Why do you know? Because we say so. So don't be pointing to Lazarus, okay? Uh, We're not buying it. We don't care. Uh, We know this man is not from God. Don't present us with the facts. It only confuses us kind of a thing. That's how irrational and hard-hearted people can be when they choose not to to believe in Jesus Christ and all the facts and all the prophecies and all the scriptures you wish you share with them are all meaningless to them because they have made up their mind and uh, they're not going to believe no matter what. Now, what was true of the hard-hearted religious leaders was not necessarily true of others that were there that day. In verse 45, again, we see that some saw the miracle of Lazarus being raised, And it caused them to believe in Him. But we have to ask the question, believe in what about Jesus? Did they believe He was the Son of God, Savior of the world, Messiah of Israel? Or did they simply believe that He was a great prophet like Moses or Elijah or Elisha? Now that was something that Jesus dealt with earlier in John's Gospel. You can turn to chapter 2 if you'd like. I think it's important to look at this once again. You know, just because the scriptures say someone believed doesn't necessarily mean they had saving faith. So a lot of people who believe a lot of right things about Jesus, but they're not going to heaven. In John chapter 2, verse 23, we read, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles, which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them. Because he knew all men, and he had no need that anyone should testify of men, for he knew what was in men. In the Greek, it's a little play on words. They believed on him, but he didn't believe in them. Because he knew their hearts. At this point, they believed he was a great prophet, no doubt. They didn't believe he was the Son of God and Savior of the world, that kind of thing. So they had faith, but not saving faith, is the idea. I don't know what these guys had, verse 45 says, I'm going to assume they have saving faith. I don't know that, but I'm going to assume it for the sake of argument. So we uh, see that some did truly believe in him and and come to salvation, verse 45. But verse 46 tells us that others did not. In fact, they reported back to the Pharisees the the things Jesus did because they were spies for the Pharisees uh, that were helping them put Jesus to death. And so it's interesting that both groups saw Jesus do the same miracle. Some believed and some did not believe. You know, Christians make the mistake of believing that if a person saw a miracle performed right in front of their very eyes, especially something as spectacular as God raising someone from the dead, well, they believe that these folks who see a miracle would almost be forced to believe. But this story proves that is not the case. Years ago, something came blowing through the church called called power evangelism. And this was really rooted in the charismatic movement, which believed and taught through this whole power evangelism that you really couldn't evangelize people unless you did it through miracles, signs and wonders. They said that's essential. If, if you don't have the Holy Spirit working through your ministry with signs and wonders, people aren't going to get saved. Well, that's not true absolutely not peter tells us in first peter chapter 1 verse 23 that we were born again not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible by the word of god which lives and abides forever it's god's word faith comes by hearing uh, romans 10 17 and hearing by the word of god so that's what god uses his word energized by the power of the holy spirit to cut to the heart bring conviction And ultimately salvation as their eyes are open and so on but we know from scripture that you know even as we talked a week ago or a couple weeks ago about Luke 16 and the rich man and a diseased beggar named Lazarus different Lazarus both died the the rich man was an unbeliever went into the torment side of Hades Lazarus who was a believer went into Abraham's bosom to be comforted he was saved and the rich man, lifting up his eyes, saw Lazarus afar off and Father Abraham comforting him. And so he yells across this gigantic gulf, Father Abraham, send Lazarus over, that he might dip his finger into some cool water and touch it to my tongue. I am tormented in these flames. And Father Abraham said, you know, son, during your life, you the good things, and Lazarus has had the evil. He's had a hard life. You were rich. He was at your gate every day. You never gave him a crumb of bread. And now in the rich man said, well, then let him go to my brothers. I have five brothers. Let him go to my brothers and warn them so they don't come to this terrible place. And here's what Moses said. Or, I'm sorry, uh, Abraham. He said, uh, they have the word of God. It's a Jewish family. They have the word of God. And if they won't listen to Moses and the word of God, they're not going to believe even if somebody came back from the dead. Well, here Jesus does bring a guy back from the dead. And his name happens to be Lazarus, a different Lazarus. Did everyone believe? No, a few did. The general reaction uh, with regard to the religious leaders was, let's kill this guy again, we can't have him walking around alive. Too many people are believing in Jesus because of his ministry. So poor Lazarus, right? Listen guys, a miracle will produce faith in a person's heart where there's already an open heart and a willingness to believe, but a miracle will never force someone to believe Who does not want to believe verse 47 then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered gathered a council and said what shall we do for this man does many signs (laughs) this guy's performing many miracles what are we gonna do here's a thought why don't you believe in him isn't that kind of obvious right I mean isn't that the logical thing to do and yet I I don't even think you know that cracked their top ten list What should we do? This guy's working miracles everywhere. What shall we do? I guess believe on him wasn't, you know, on the list. I mean, to borrow a a line from Joe Biden. Come on, man. (laughs) Get with the program. Verse 48, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Now, this verse gives us insight into why these men refused to believe in Jesus. And there's other reasons, but one of them was right here. They were concerned that if the Jewish people embraced Jesus as their Messiah and King, Rome would see it as an act of insurrection, and they would then send their armies to destroy the nation. Of course, that would also mean their cushy little jobs and positions, our place, as they called it, uh, would also be taken from them, all the power, the prestige, prosperity, and so on, would all be also removed, and that was the thing they couldn't handle. That was the thing they, they, they couldn't deal with. I mean, let me say that some of the greatest opposition against the work of God and the truth of God down through the centuries has come from religious people, not atheists or agnostics. Dead religious orthodoxy always persecutes a fresh move of God. They're too much old wineskins. They can't deal with it. God's not doing it the way they've always done it. Many people have become so wrapped up in their religious denomination that they're missing the whole point. Their denomination was never supposed to be an end in itself. It was only designed to be a vehicle to bring them closer to God. At some point, many people stop seeing it as a vehicle and set it up as an object of worship. They worship their denomination, they worship their denominational church. In that regard, their relig- religious affiliation is counterproductive. It actually becomes a hindrance to them having a true and vibrant relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. The church, and I've got it in my notes, all capitals with little rays coming out like it's radiating sunlight, you know. Uh, It's an object of worship. In their mind, it's the church with its traditions, ceremonies, and rituals. Uh, These become more important. The church, than God and His Word, and as such, Their religion, their denomination supersedes God and His Word. Turn to Matthew chapter 15. Let me just read you verses 1 to 9 and so you get a flavor of this. Again, some people's religion, and I'm thinking of their denomination now primarily although in Matthew 15, Jesus is talking about Judaism, we could be talking about Roman Catholicism, the system I grew up in, or Lutheranism, or some other uh, ism, all right? But, uh, you know, a church that has all these traditions and ceremonies and rituals, that has actually become more important to them than God himself. They would never say it that way. They might not even realize that's what's going on, but I'm telling you, that's what's going on. And Jesus indicts the religious leaders of his day And this could be an indictment to any of the Christian leaders in our nation that fall into the same trap. He said in verse 1, Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? See how their traditions were everything. For they do not wash their hands in the ideas in the prescribed ceremonial way when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your traditions? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. Now, I don't have time to get into all that. In words, but, but I can't take care of you, Mom and Dad, in your old age, because I've dedicated everything to God. Didn't have to actually give it to God. It was called Corbin. They just could. Say it was dedicated to God and they didn't have to help dedicate. Get around God's command to honor your parents by taking care of them when they're in their old age, right? The honorable thing to do, right? You want to honor God, bless bless your parents. But not the Pharisees and scribes. They had figured out a, a way around that a loophole. Uh I I'm sorry, mom and dad, I know you're destitute and you haven't got money for food, but I'd like to help you, but all my money has been given it's all carbon. Jesus said, That's disgusting. You're you're worried about the disciples not washing their hands in the ceremonial way, and your moms and your dads are going hungry. That's disgusting. Verse six, verse five. Um, whoever says it was father or mother, uh, whatever prophet you may have received as a gift of God. Then verse six, he said. Uh, then he need not honor his father and mother. This you have made the, uh, the, uh, thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition, hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Very interesting how people can be extremely religious and yet are missing the point so wrapped up in their traditions and their man-made laws like the scribes and the Pharisees uh, going to church constantly. I know Catholics that go to church every single day of the week. Yet are clueless to what God has really said about righteousness and so on. I think it's one of the glaring truths this passage teaches. These men were exactly like so many today who judge things, listen, not on the basis of what's right or wrong, but by how it's going to affect them. As some have called it today, the numerality, or situational ethics, okay? That's what people have embraced today in our culture. It's no more what's right or wrong based on absolutes. It now depends on the situation and how it's going to affect me. That's what determines if something is right or wrong. We see this being played out on the political scene all the time, especially during this election season that we're in, where it's not really what's right or wrong. We have an objective, and that's to get rid of this president. So everything we do becomes right. Even if it's wrong, it's right. And this is the mentality today. Of course, that applies to a lot of other things. These men were the very embodiment of the selfish, self-serving attitude all the way. They didn't judge on the basis of morality, God's laws, or what was right or wrong. Rather, they judged on the basis of, what is it going to do for me? How is it going to help or hurt my career, or help or hurt me politically? I mean, right or wrong, I don't think ever entered into their minds. Folks, that's philosophical hedonism. Philosophical hedonism. Whatever accomplishes my highest good, that's what I'm going to do. It's the philosophy of do your own thing. Look out for number one. And if it feels good, do it all rolled into one. To it succinctly, it's the philosophy of self. And it's as old as time because that's exactly what Satan told Eve in the Garden of Eden. Eve, do what's best for you you got to look out for number one, Eve. Go ahead and eat the fruit. Forget what God said. Do your own thing. Be your own person. And out of that hedonistic philosophy of life comes selfishness, a total lack of respect for laws, for parents, for teachers, for police officers, and anyone else in authority. It gives rise to anarchy sexual promiscuity, run amok, abortion on demand cuz now you got all these unwanted kids through all this sexual freedom. Basically it gives rise to when anything goes society. These ideas and philosophies have been sown in our societies for our society for many years, especially in our universities, which have become a hotbed, they they're, they're hotbeds for leftist communist Ideologies and and anti-Americanism. And now they are coming to fruition. All these years of sowing to the wind, we're reaping the whirlwind now. All these years, the devil has been sowing these ideas into our society, and now we really are embracing them as a people. We used to write them off as just some left-wing kookiness. Now it's become mainstream. That's That's the dangerous thing. That's the unnerving thing. And now we're seeing the fruition. Now we're seeing these ideas coming to fruition, bearing, you know, the poisonous fruits that we see every night on TV with the rioting and the looting and the tearing down of our national monument and the overall breakdown of our society. It's the same philosophy that Israel embraced during the, time of the book of, during the time of the period of the Judges. Remember we read in the book of Judges? The thing that characterized that period philosophically was there was no king in Israel. Therefore, everyone did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Read the book of Judges. Get the uh, the view of the mess that kind of philosophy can make uh, uh, can can turn a society into. Guys, all the problems we have in America today find their roots in this attitude. The collapse of the family. Rebellion, crime, the push to get rid of the police and to empty and tear down all the prisons because people who are rebellious don't want people who other people who are rebellious to be held accountable. Get rid of the police, they won't be arrested. Get rid of the prisons, they won't have to serve time. It all feeds into this rebellious mindset. And of course, as the Bible says, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry these are things God takes very seriously I'm sorry but you know I know they need to be saved and I do pray for them but when I see these dumbed down useful idiots in the streets of our major cities screaming their ridiculous demands. God help them. But it all stems from people who have rejected God and his laws and are now placing their own desires and pleasures above above everybody else. But listen, the philosophy of existentialism, hedonism, and the ever-changing morality of a society divorced from God and his laws, well, that's the exact opposite of divine absolutism. Divine absolutism says that there are moral absolutes, moral laws of right and wrong, which are written in stone. Even as Moses received God's laws on tablets of stone, listen, written with the finger of God. God's absolute laws have also been written by God on the hearts of every person of which our conscience is the alarm system that God has given to us, which begins to warn us. How does it do when we cross God's, you know, when we cross the line and, and move from obedience to God's laws into disobedience? What is that alarm system? Guilt. It's our conscience. Conscience warning us that we have violated one of God's laws. And listen, people think because God has not acted immediately to bring some kind of judgment upon them for disobeying his laws that maybe he doesn't care how i live that's absolutely wrong it's a fatal mistake to think that god very much cares and holds every person responsible to obey his laws which he has written in their hearts and if you don't think so read romans chapter 2 verses 14 to 16 and other places I mean, everywhere you look in God's creation, you see things functioning according to the natural laws God has established. Uh, These laws, some have called the laws of nature. But then when it comes to man, so everything around us is functioning according to certain laws. But then when it comes to man, the most important part of God's creation, many turn around and believe that God says, do your own thing. Do whatever you think is right don't bet on it don't bet on it god will judge those who live contrary to his laws in fact sin has built in consequences attached to it remember what god said in jeremiah chapter 2 verse 19 he said your own wickedness will correct you and your backslidings will rebuke you know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the lord your god And the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. What is God saying? He is saying, you can go ahead and violate my laws. There's going to come an ultimate day of judgment if you don't repent. But built into rebellion and disobedience to my laws are consequences. Now, I think we're seeing those consequences played out in some of the major cities of our country. Have you been following Seattle, Portland especially, where there's been like, I don't know, 65, 70 days every nonstop uh, riding every every night? Chicago's now it's now started in Chicago, New York. What is this but the fruit of an evil ideology that says there is no God, you're God, do whatever you want to do. And therefore, if I'm God and I can do whatever I want to do, I don't want to obey your laws. I don't want to obey your rules, Seattle or Portland. In fact, I want to take over. I I want this to be my town where I can do anything I want. You know, someone has said we we have the freedom to make our choices, but we do not have the freedom to choose our consequences. In other words, you can choose to do whatever you want, but you don't get to choose how it will affect your life. The Bible puts it, you will reap what you sow. As somebody has said, you can choose to stick your hand in the fire, but you can't choose whether or not you're going to get burned. You can choose to jump off a tall building, but you can't choose whether or not you hit the ground. You can choose to smoke cigarettes for years, but you can't choose whether or not you get lung cancer. And on and on it goes. If you apply those that same idea to the lawlessness in our society, you see the fruit that we're reaping now. I mean, satisfying lust and sinful desires leads to broken marriages, disease, venereal disease, unwanted pregnancies. When people satisfy their greed, it leads to crime, corruption, pollution, and sometimes to murder. And I'm thinking abortion definitely is murder, but then even other uh, 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 kinds of murder to to steal and things like that. The Bible says that God is long-suffering, and He's patient, and that... His patience, though, is not going to last forever. At one point, it's going to come to an end, and His judgment will fall. You can count on that if you doubt it. Join us on Wednesday nights for our study of Revelation. We're getting to that part where we're going to see God's wrath poured out on this Christ-rejecting world. The good news is if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to be taken before the judgment is poured out because it's only poured out on rebels, not those that have repented and received Christ. So we'll be evacuated. Before God pours His judgment out upon the rebellious, John 11:48. Once again, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Verse 49. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, "You know nothing at all." Basically, Caiaphas is saying, "You blockheads, you're all stupid." Now, you you, you got to understand Caiaphas, okay? Caiaphas was an egotistical, rude, devious manipulator. He was a godless phony, bent on getting whatever he want, no matter what. He didn't care about shedding some innocent blood. If it could bring him what he wanted, he comes across here all concerned, okay? Uh, he's not concerned about anybody but himself, really. He was the biggest religious phony and hypocrite there ever was, history tells us. So just understand who's talking here, okay? Verse 50, Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. I mean, what a hypocrite. He disguised his murderous hatred for Jesus as patriotism. Now, I don't know who you're going to vote for this November. And I wouldn't tell you who to vote for. I know who I'm voting for. And I'll tell you this, there are those that hate Donald Trump so much, but they won't say it. So they wrap themselves in the flag and talk about our nation, how bad he is for our nation. You may think he's bad for the nation. But when I see what others have done when they were in power, when I see what leftists have allowed to happen in Seattle, in Portland, in Chicago, in New York, in New Jersey, in other places around the country, how they're letting criminals out of prison, some of them are rapists and even murderers, and some governors want to throw pastors in prison who will meet against their executive orders and have church, which, thank God, judges shot down in California, surprisingly, with a case, couple of cases out there. It's just sickening to me. When people who don't love the country, and, and, and you, know, you, you see it on their, what they've said in the past and on their Twitter feeds, ripping America apart, putting America down. Then when they run for office, America is the greatest country in the world, and I just want to, to rescue it from this evil president. I, I just want to make it better. No, you want to be in power. You want to be in power, and you want to use your power to put down anybody who disagrees with you, and in the meantime, make as much money as you can. How does a politician enter into politics as a senator or a House of Representative person? Uh, You know, it's just an ordinary, you come out rich. How do you come out rich? You're making a decent salary, but not where you come out with 20 or 30 million dollars. Something's not right there. It's amazing how corrupt people, phony, corrupt people, can make the evil in their hearts look good and noble and right and even patriotic. God's not fooled. Verse 51, as we bring this to a close. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. You might be thinking, Caiaphas was an unbeliever, right? Yes. Will God speak through unbelievers? If he chooses to, yeah. In the Old Testament, he spoke through a donkey, a real donkey. You think he can't speak through a donkey like Caiaphas? And I'm being polite. At this point, Caiaphas was used, he was the high priest. And of course, because he was the high priest, he had a pulpit, he had a voice. That others will listen to. So God prophesies through him, he didn't even realize what he was saying. But this last point that it's expedient for one man to die, that the whole nation not perish, uh, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Look, this he's prophesying something Jesus said. Earlier in his ministry, I'll have to turn there. John 12, verse 32. If I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself, Jews, Gentiles, all those who are scattered around the earth from this time forward, those who will receive me as their Lord and Savior. I will draw them. That at one point they, they all, Jews, Gentiles, be members of the same family, the family of God. Verse 53, Then from that day on they plotted to put him, Jesus, to death. Guys, some of the worst people who have ever lived, the greediest, the cruelest, the most power-hungry, have been religious men and women. I hope you realize that. Here are these religious men and their leaders who are plotting the death of an innocent man. But, But listen, even more importantly, the innocent man they were plotting to kill was the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate. They were plotting to kill the very God who created them. John 1 verse 3 For by him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that was made. Why would these religious men want to kill their own Messiah who was also their God? Because he was different. He was different from what they believed him to be. You know, religious people make God, listen, in their own image and after their own likeness and will kill, quote-unquote, the true God when presented to them. You've heard people say, Oh, well, God, is I perceive him to be, as such and such and so and so. I don't care what you perceive him to be. I'm going to present to you the God of, in truth, the God of the word, right? But see, the God of the word is a loving God, but he's also a righteous and holy God. He offers salvation and forgiveness to anyone who will receive his son. Those that don't, he says, I must judge. Now, there's a lot of people that are living the way they want to live, doing their own thing, quote unquote. And they have invented a God in their own mind that is tolerant, loving to the point where he would never judge, never send anyone to a place called hell. In fact, it's not even a real place, right? And when you present the true and living God to them, the God of the Bible, they say, "Well, that's not my God. My God is so and so and so." You know, and, and they present this this God that they've invented. My God would never send anyone to hell. Of course, he wouldn't. He doesn't exist. Look, I'm going to finish here. We'll just finish the end of the chapter, which sets up really chapter 12 next week, so I'll just leave it there. But these men had invented, had developed a do-it-yourself religious system, a man-made religion of their own making through their traditions and man-made laws that was different from what God had given them In Judaism. Judaism was always intended by God to point to the new covenant. This was not a secret. You can go back and read Jeremiah 31, verse 31, where God said, there's coming a day I'm gonna make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the one I made with them when I took them by the hand, led them out of Egypt, that covenant which they broke, I'm gonna write my laws in their hearts, and so on and so forth. Judaism was always intended to point to someone it was never intended to go on indefinitely. And so what God had originally given, they perverted by turning it into an object of worship instead of allowing it to point them to the one that even back in Moses said, Deuteronomy 18. The Lord is going to raise up a prophet like me from your people and him you need to listen to. No, these, these guys loved their religion so much. And all their man-made traditions and rules. They loved them more than they loved God. They didn't maybe realize that, but they did. As was evidenced in the fact that when God came down, the true and living God, to write their perverted concept of religion, they clung to their religion and killed Jesus. This is the sad thing today. There's a lot of zealous people And a lot of them are zealous for religion. Some are zealous for politics. There's a lot of zealous people out there who think they have the right way. They're doing what's right. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end thereof is the way of death. In other words, you can be sincerely, you can be um, sincere in what you believe, but you can also be sincerely wrong. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus Christ came down to present himself to a fallen, lost world. He didn't present religion. He presented himself. And we have said it before. Let me say it again. God does not want religion from you. He wants a relationship with you. But man being religious by nature offers God lightings of candles and rosary praying and burning of incense and stained glass windows and statues everywhere. Thinking that somehow that's going to make them righteous. The keeping of sacraments, the going to church or mass or whatever you do. The scribes and Pharisees were very religious. In fact, Paul would go on to say in Romans 10. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant, for they seeking to establish their own righteousness, but being ignorant of God's righteousness, well, I'll paraphrase, offer offer God religion and not genuine, heartfelt faith. So if you're here this morning, and you have not given your heart to Christ, I'm not saying you haven't grown up in church, I'm not saying you haven't, uh, you know, kept holy days and sacraments and whatever else paul said when i really understood the gospel all the things i did in my life with regard to religion i counted them as dung for the excellency of the knowledge of jesus christ my lord is gain you want to be saved you put your heart And soul, you give your heart and soul to Jesus and say, by faith, Lord, I believe in you. I believe who you are, the son of God. I believe what you did. You died for my sins on the cross. And three days later, you rose again. I give you my heart. I give you my life. Come in and take control. And when you pray that prayer from the heart, Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will come in and make you a brand new creation. And then you will understand what I'm talking about. I had religion once. Now I have a relationship. Two totally different things, and I would never go back. I would never go back. So may God give you grace to make the right choice. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We ask you, Lord, to touch every heart that is here today, that is watching online, that, Lord, you would bring them to your Son. That, Lord, we would all come to a saving knowledge. Everyone who's, our family who's not saved you, Lord, that they would all come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to share your word. We ask all this now in your precious name. Amen.